0: Uh, Luke chapter 15 I remember the sermons we brought here last year and I of course, remember those that we shared with you while we are here over the last few weeks. And a lot of it had to do with the situation in the world and, uh, and the alarming things that are taking place at the highest level. Uh, we must not be blind. We have enough <clears throat> from the scripture to tell us that huge things are taking place. Things that are so huge that may usher us, really, lead to the return of Christ. Um, and we also emphasize the fact that we have a responsibility. We can not only be looking at what is happening in the world. We must be concerned and we must be uh, actively involved in contrasting evil in all its worst forms uh, as it attacks and destroys humanity. But especially spreading the gospel so that other people may be saved. We have a responsibility individually. We have a responsibility collectively. Yes church, local church and we have a responsibility uh, ecclesiologically (laughs) we need to cultivate uh, a greater amount of inner church fellowship because we cannot do this on our own Uh, some of our churches are smaller some are bigger but that's not the point, none of us is sufficient for the for what is confronting us, especially these days. As I was sharing with the pastors uh, a few days ago, I think Brother Glenn was there, we might do a lot more strategy than we have been doing. We do not do strategy. Each one of us you know, battles on his own, even churches wise, but we are in a battle, we are in a war, And in a war, strategy has a very important place. It's a determining factor. And those who are commander-in-chiefs, or the generals, or the officers, they need to gather under a tent with their map, you know, before their eyes, and think, what's the enemy trying to do? How are we to counter that? What are we to do? And I I don't think we're doing that. Um, And so, In no way I'm saying that, you know, we just need to be still because the Lord will take care of everything. You know, He's sovereign. (laughs) That idea of sovereignty that takes away our responsibility is a corruption of the teaching of the Word of God. We have full responsibility of everything that we are to do, uh, not out of our own strength because we're not able to do anything, but drawing strength and grace from God. Um, and so there must be a balance in this. But <clears throat> now when it comes down to it, however, we know that ultimately this is not our battle. We are, in it. <laughs> we are part of the Lord's army, but it's not our battle, it's His battle. And we are not able ourselves to contrast what's happening, we're not able to affect uh, the events that will determine the course of this world. We cannot even affect the course of events of somebody's life. Change, you know, the destiny of people. Uh, we cannot even affect our own life. It all comes from God. Um, and so there must be a place of rest. Uh, We must be actively involved in praying, thinking, strategizing, working, printing, preaching, everything that we can do. We must be laborers. Uh, Paul does compare the work of a pastor to the works of an oxen uh, in the scripture. (laughs) So it gives you a picture of the hard labor that must be carried on. I'm not sure how many pastors we have anymore with that kind of fiber. But in today's pastors, they all dress well. They, they all have their suits and ties, you know, and plenty of money, it seems to me. But we have perhaps few laborers, mm-hmm. few laborers. Um, we must reduce salaries. <laughs> Perhaps cut them in half, at least. And even in missionaries, missionaries are overly paid. And uh, to my understanding, understand but I won't go into that. Um, <coughs> but this parable is so important because ultimately, ultimately, it reminds us that God has an interest in saving individuals. Individuals, So we must be sure, we must be sure, says Peter, that we are among God's people individually, personally. Because it was yesterday, we were young. And tomorrow we won't be here anymore. And eternity lasts forever. So we must be sure that we are part of God's people. And we must be sure that we evangelize in such a way as to reach individuals. Not just the mass, the mass, but individuals, individuals. Individuals must see Christ in our life. Individuals must hear the gospel from our lips, but also living it out in our life. And, uh, and we must have that individual concern. We cannot reach all the individuals in the world, but we are called to reach those that are, that are near us, our neighbor those who are near us. Um, And so this parable is so indicative of that because um, in Luke 15, actually we have three parables. And all of them emphasize this individual aspect. It says the Lord, as he tells the parable, what of a man having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So the concern for the individual, for the single person. Uh, Again, it says, uh, verse 8, A what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, see, one coin, does not lit a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And of course, again the parable of the prodigal son, we know it has to do with two individuals focusing, first part on one individual, focusing on the uh, second one, on the the the, the brother in the second portion of the parable. So, um, the Lord will save a a huge mass of redeemed, of (laughs) millions and millions and millions, we know that from the book of Revelation, from history. uh, But He does so by saving individuals, individuals, one at a time, one at a time. Um, and so that's what we want to talk about today <laughs> salvation, salvation what the gospel is we must be sure that we are saved and I'm using the word saved not in a traditional way in a cultural way there's a lot of talk on the radio and everywhere in this nation of being saved being born again and I'm, um, I don't know, you know, double sentiments about these things. I hope some of it is good. (laughs) Um, But I'm talking about truly coming to know the Lord, truly being converted, truly being forgiven, truly being washed, truly experience that work of repentance, conversion, a change of life that takes place when we come to the end of ourselves we see ourselves totally lost and we cry out to God to, to have mercy on our soul. Recently I was talking to my mother in Italy and she just, I visited her in the morning and just, just up and said I'm scared to die. I'm scared to die. She's almost 80 years old. And uh, and so we talked extensively you know, about the gospel and very simple woman but the gospel then ultimately it is a simple message it is deep <laughs> it may be the most it, it may be explained in very complex thoughts and ideas and truths but when it boils down to it it's just a sinner broken that comes to God asking for forgiveness with a truly repentant heart um, and so one thing I told her, Mama, make sure you don't die without God's protection over you. Don't die without God's protection. Uh, and so I said, I, can't, I don't want to lead you in any prayer. It's, it's between you and God. But don't die without God's forgiveness. <clears throat> Let us, so look over this passage. We'll be focusing... Especially on the parable of the prodigal son, but I would like to uh, say a few things at the very beginning because what we read in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 is this: Then all tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Now, this uh, beginning—it's—it's it's a very Very telling. It tells us that we are to locate this episode at the beginning of Jesus' message. Because a time will come (laughs) where not many sinners will continue to hear him, not many crowds will continue to follow him. That happened at the beginning. There was this sensation, Jesus. (laughs) And crowds went everywhere to hear him. They said he practiced miracles. They said he would heal the sick and heal the blind and, and make the crippled to walk and, and even raise people from the dead. And, but he also spoke words of life, words that were never oh, uh, heard before. And so uh, great crowds we read, especially in the beginning chapters, would flock coming to hear him. But then after a while, they begin to shrink and shrink Drink. And if we read in Genesis, in John chapter six, there was a watershed uh, of, of the Lord's ministry because a massive um, thousands of his disciples just left him. What you're talking about is too hard for us. You're asking too much. You, you can't be the bread of life for us. You know, you're just a human being and you cannot ask us to have that kind of faith that you are our all in all no and, uh, and so we are so to locate this episode in the moment where great crowds would gather to hear him but it is surprising because here it doesn't say just great crowds drew near but collectors and sinners drew near. There's a special emphasis there. Uh, these were the people that were not religious, that were not moral, that were not upright. <laughs> no, no, these were the very opposite. These were the immoral. These were the atheist. These were the lost and undone and irrecuperable. You could not You cannot see redemption. There was no hope of redemption for for them. They were beyond recovery in the eyes of many. But these especially drew near him. And um, this fact is noted by Luke and emphasized by Luke also because it was in stark contrast to the fact that these very people, the tax collectors and sinners, would not draw near the religious teachers of the times. Uh, they were not attracted by them, by their personality, by their attitude, or by their message. And so it was something new to see sinners, just out-and-out out sinners, immoral people, perverted people, in to hear a message that had to do with God, with repentance with conversion with forgiveness with the need to change your life and so the question is why were so drawn why were they so drawn to him that they would come and hear him and I would say two things uh, first of all they drew near the Lord because he drew near to them yes. Yes. he drew near to them um, We have many examples, of course, all over the scripture, but I would remind you of Matthew in in chapter 9. You remember that. uh, Matthew 9, verse 9, the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. That's That's a good illustration for us. It reads this way, the episode. Then as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And so it was, as Jesus sat at the table in the house of Matthew that behold, look, how extraordinary. Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. This sounds very much like what we were just reading. They came to hear him. But why did they come? Because he called, he went towards Matthew, and he called Matthew to himself. He sought after him, and he called him to become his disciple. Matthew accepted the calling, and then because Jesus was so open and available to sinners, even to his friends. And these were not people that had a good reputation. These, these were the worst kinds. The uh, opportunists. Um, of the opportunists. You know, using their political position and social position. To tax people to death. You know, drawing their blood. While at the same time serving the Romans. That had taken over. Uh, you know, uh, Palestine at the time. And so they were hated by everybody, the tax collectors, but lo and behold, Jesus went towards them, sought them, and called them. And Matthew said, Well, you know what? I'm going to invite all of my friends. I'm going to have just an open house invitation. And that's exactly what he did <clears throat> a house full of sinners. Oh and Jesus was there in their very midst. He was sitting at the table, he was eating and drinking. What an extraordinary God. How different is God from us? Um, and Jesus no one uh, I'm sorry, I'm reading uh, verse 11 then and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners you see that's why tax collectors and sinners did not draw near the Pharisees the word Pharisee you know means separate 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 from sin separate from a ceremonial contamination but especially separate from sinners They they would cross the street to, to be able to avoid sinners. <clears throat> no sinner could enter their house. Um, there were lots of practices for them to keep themselves holy and upright. you know. Uh, but we won't get into that. Just to, to notice their complaint. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he himself said to them, they had asked his disciples, but Jesus answers their question. Those who are well, like you, have no need of a physician, do they? But those who are sick like these, they need a physician. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You're so wrapped up in all your ceremonies. And you think religion is all about ceremonies religion is not about ceremonies. It's about mercy. It's about mercy. If you tasted mercy, you will have and must have mercy for others. Those who are well, we know that nobody's well. But some people think they're well. It says, so it was like it was saying, those who are well like you have no need of a physician, do they? But those who are sick need a physician. That's why I'm here. Because of their need. Their need. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous like you. But sinners just like these. To repentance. I think that's exactly what he intended to say. And he was not being sarcastic. He was being so truthful. And those who had ears to hear heard. Those who didn't, did not. But you see this attitude, this attitude towards sinners, and that's exactly why they responded to him. That's the main reason why they responded to him, because he went towards them. He went towards them. Mm-hmm. And that shows us that our attitude must not be one of passivity. You know, with our neighbors, with our friends, and with The people in general. We would not be passively waiting for God's elect to come to us. (laughs) No, no. God sends us. He always has the initiative. And he manifests his initiative through us. So we must be initiators. Otherwise we act contrarily to the sovereign grace we profess to believe. It's strange, isn't it? <laughs> so much talking about God taking the initiative and then we're passive. <laughs> now, that's a contradiction. If we believe the initiatives of God, then how does He do that? Well, because He sends His people forward. You know, that missionary heart, all these missionaries that went everywhere throughout history, <laughs> unstoppable, in the worst of circumstances, much worse than us today. Read the biographies of the seventeen hundreds, the eighteen hundreds, and even earlier, you know, last century. Uh, no comparison. You know, I can catch a flight and come here every year. Uh, and it's not all that astronomically expensive, but back then they took six months to cross the ocean to, to cross the ocean to be able to come here once in their, their lifetime. And so, no, no passivity we see in Him. There should be no passivity in us. Um, but secondly, let us return to... Um, oh, Secondly, let me notice this, however. See that word in Matthew 9. That last little word there. <laughs> I did not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentant. To repentance. So you see this perfect uh, balance. Here is God who seeks after the lost. He takes the initiative. Uh, He goes after them. He seeks after them. And, And he does it with open arms saying, here I am. Follow me. Come to me. Follow me. But the message is one of repentance. It is not just a God who, just uh, this old, you know, Santa Claus type of God who he will embrace us, everybody, he forgives them no matter what you do, his arms are always open, his door is always open. and No, no. This is, is a very gracious God, more gracious than we could ever imagine, because he gave himself for us ultimately, but he da, does ask for repentance, ravvedimento ravvedimento. If we preach grace without repentance, then grace is no longer grace. If we teach repentance without grace, it becomes penance and it's no longer repentance. So the the, the balance is just what we see in our Lord. Se predichiamo la grazia senza ravvedimento, la grazia non è più grazia, perché non cambia la persona se predichiamo ravvedimento senza la grazia diventa penitenza e la penitenza non è più ravvedimento ravvedimento è interiore interiore che poi porta cambiamento di vita esteriore se c'è lo porta sempre so questo equilibrio straordinario equilibrio che vediamo nel messaggio di Cristo and so having said this let us go back to Um, Luke chapter 15 again and let us just notice some things because there is a second element here that we must notice that will enable us to understand why so many drew near to him and especially so many sinners one we saw this He went towards this initiative of love, of mercy, and availability, and open arms, just like with Israel's. Open arms, come unto me, all you that are uh, sick and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, however, the question that we must ask is, where did that message come from? What was the foundation of that message that attracted sinners who thought themselves without hope and we find the explanation in these very verses. First of all, let us read, however, verse 2. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see what happened in Matthew is repeated here. They don't like the fact that Christ is so, uh, makes Himself so available, so willing, so near sinners as to be with them. And to be mixed with them, to eat with them, to drink with them, to talk to them, uh, and receive them. This man receives sinners. They, they hated that. They thought that's not the way God is. God is a stern, inflexible judge who judges according to merit. And this, these people merit to be damned. So why bother? That was their mindset. There was no mercy. But they're out for a surprise here because look what happens now. The Lord shares shares with them not one but three parables to make the point right, clear. He spoke to them this first parable saying, What men of you having a hundred sheep? If one loses, if he loses one of them, Does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after, go after, go after. You see the initiative. The one which is lost until he finds it. That until means persistence. He goes after the lost persistently. The message of the gospel is not about man seeking God. Man doesn't do that. We don't do that. It is about God seeking man. It is about seeking sinners. Even one is important to Him. None of us, none of us, none of us should feel He doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. He can't be bothered with me. This parable and many others and the whole of the Bible is there to tell us God cares for the individual, for the every, every individual. If He loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And then, look, when he has found it, he lays, his, he lays it on his own shoulders, rejoicing, rejoicing. So he just grabs it by his shoulders and he returns home rejoicing. The joy of God, the joy of God. God is happy, heaven is happy. When one single sinner is saved. And when he comes home. He calls together his friends and neighbors. Saying to them. Rejoice. Again the note of joy. Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep. Which was lost. And literally the Lord says. This parable applies to heaven. Because I say to you. Likewise. (laughs) We go from the parable to reality. Sometimes from reality to parable. Now we go from the parable to the reality. I say to you, this is the application. Let me apply it for you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, one sinner who repents. See, one sinner who repents. Than over 99 just, just persons who would need no repentance like you. You remember that later on in the parable the prodigal son the second son said you never rejoiced about me you remember that Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what he's saying here the 99 just are are just in their own eyes they're not just in the eyes of God they're the Pharisees who consider themselves just but God has no joy over religious Pharisees but he has joy over sinners who repent, who repent. And then again, what woman, and notice the the Lord's sensitivity. The first parable, he uses a shepherd, a man. The second parable, a woman. He wants to include all the audience. He wants everybody to be able to identify with what it's talking about. It does happen to a, a shepherd to lose a sheep, But it also does happen to a housewife to lose something in the house. Something precious, perhaps. She can't find it anymore. Well, she's not going to give up until she finds it. (laughs) One woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light up a a, a lamp. Sweep the house and seek diligently until, see, persistency and initiative. She finds it. And when she has found it, oh, she doesn't stop there. Again, she calls her own friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And again, the interpretation is given by the Lord himself. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So God is the one who seeks and goes after and saves, and his friends are the angels. Every one, one person is saved. God collectively calls the angels together and they rejoice over that one person saved we should be able to rejoice (laughs) because there is joy in heaven for sure Um, and then of course follow the the parable of the prodigal son but before we say we get into that just a, a few minutes let me again emphasize the picture that God here, that Christ here is creating. Uh, he's depicting a picture, a painting. You have the shepherd who goes after the sheep, finds the sheep, rejoices, call of his friends. And it's a wonderful time of rejoicing because he loved that sheep. <laughs> and he wants to share that joy that he feels with his friends. So that's speaking of the heart of God. The heart of God. We do believe that God has sentiments. (laughs) You'd be surprised how many sovereign grace churches don't believe that God has emotions or sentiments or feelings. But the Bible is full of this. (laughs) They are absolute feelings and sentiments and emotions. We cannot comprehend them. uh, So big they are. But. It is very evident that Christ here through these different parables is communicating a vision of God a concept of God who do you think God is and as we begin to work this in our mind we can see the ultimate problems of the Pharisee was a wrong concept of God stern inflexible and He judged according to merit. Christ said, God is not that way. God is not that way. He's a heavenly Father. He loves mankind. He seeks after the laws. He anxiously, quote-unquote, seeks after them, persistently seeks after them, and when He finds them, He rejoices. And he he cannot contain his joy, so that he involves his angels to rejoice with him. That's who God is. Which teaches us, basically, that ultimately every theological problem stems out, comes out, derives from a wrong concept of God. You can trace it. It may begin very, 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 very far away, perhaps at the margin of Christian truth. It's a a marginal aspect, but if you trace it, it will lead you ultimately to a wrong concept of God. Because all truth stems out of the nature of God. And when you alter one point, it's because you, you are not comprehending correctly some aspect of the character of God. And that's exactly what Christ does here. It's like He's saying, You know, Pharisees, ultimately what your problem is. You do not know who God is. You do not know. That's how you behave. That's why you behave in such a way towards other people. You think you're you're holier, you're righteous, you're upright, you're religious, you have merits and and you have this you know, disgusted attitude towards others, as if you're better than they are. But this human behavior that's an ordinary, everyday behavior ultimately goes back to your wrong view of who God is. God is not the one you believe in. This is God. Uh, what an amazing analysis he does, really, really. Uh, you know, true Christianity is never about, it's never about letting your mind float somewhere. There's no mysticism in Christianity. Christianity, in many ways, is rational. It's also sentimental. It's also conscientious. <laughs> it involves the whole of the person. Even the emotional part has a role. But it's balanced. You don't see, you know, excess. You don't see just intellectualistic, you know, the brain and just that. You just don't see just a bunch of emotions being displayed, perhaps with disorder and confusion. You don't see that in the Lord. You see just that balance of the whole person. Every faculty is lived out in in harmony with the rest. Uh, And he's uh, the example for us, for sure, in this regard. Oh, so even this morning we should ask, we all should ask ourselves, how do we view God? What is my concept of God? How do I I understand Him? Uh, If I'm only terrified and scared of God and afraid of Him, it is because we don't see the mercy and the grace and the goodness that God wants us to see. If on their hand we see God who's just a big Babbo Natale, you know, that forgives everybody, then we're not seeing the justice of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And so, balance, balance. Nothing is more important in life than to have a proper understanding of who God is. From that derives everything, everything. And now, for our last few minutes, let us look at the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 11. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So the father divided to them his a livelihood. And let us stop there for a moment. Um. Uh, there's a father and there's two sons well we should immediately try to understand who they represent who do they represent we know somewhat the story there's a a son who uh, leaves a father and lives a very corrupted life wasting away all his inheritance the other remains in the proximity of the father but his heart is far away from the father so much so that when the prodigal son finally comes back, returns, he is fully embraced by, the, by his father again, but not by his brother, who complains. Let, let, let's look at uh, uh, um, verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. What's going on? And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he's received his safe, uh, received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But the brother was angry and would not go in. You see, Two different attitudes. Two different attitudes. So, if we should ultimately ask, who do these, you know, figures represent? The answer is very easy. Uh, these two sons, the father represents Christ, and the two sons represent the two categories that are described in chapter fifteen, verse one and two. On the one hand, you have the tax collectors and the sinners who are returning to Christ to some extent and they are welcomed by Christ received by Christ and verse 2 you have another category the category of the religious the upright the Pharisees and scribes who murmured just like the second son murmured because the father received his son back notice exactly what they say Uh, Verse 2, they murmur because he receives sinners and eats with them. And lo and behold, <laughs> uh, verse 27, your brother is coming because he, the father, your father has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the father of cow. you see that, receiving, receiving. And the other brother is not happy with that. Uh, certainly, therefore... We have here a representation with these two figures of sinners and Pharisees, irreligious and religious, immoral and moral, atheists and theists. Um, and so what happens here? Well now the, the Lord and you know very briefly verse twelve describes the life, the decisions that the younger son makes give me the portion of goods that falls to me now uh, yeah <laughs> he expects to have the inheritance ahead of time which was a great and offensive statement to make because you usually wait for the parents to die and then you have the inheritance by asking the inheritance first it was like Um, almost like wishing, you know, you were dead. You don't mean that much to me. I want to go my own way. I don't care to live with you. I want what's mine now. Notice, however, that inheritance, per se, is a gift of grace. He didn't own these things. The father worked for his own properties. And so he's already being given something by grace as a gift but what does he do with it Uh, verse 13 not many days after the younger son gathered all together and went away he journeyed to a far country a far away country he made sure he was at a long distance from his father because he did not want his father to hear anything about him he did not want to exactly live the kind of life his father would be pleased with. Uh, and there, in fact, wasted his possessions with prodigal, wasteful living. From then on, when he spent it all, he had no you know nothing else in his pocket, it begins to go down. one thing that should strike us here is the fact that the Lord keeps himself general. He says that he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He doesn't enter into any detail. How did he waste everything? What sort of life did he live? In fact, the other son when he complained about his brother, look what he said. Uh, We're talking about the end of the parable. Uh, he said uh, verse 30 as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your, your livelihood with harlots you killed the fatted calf 40 you don't make any sense father why are you being so merciful when he's wasted everything you've given him with prostitutes see that's a detail does he know that's exactly what happened no he doesn't he doesn't know how all this livelihood was wasted, but he supposes was with prostitutes, but he, he doesn't know. But Jesus, who knew, doesn't say it. And, and the question should ask, why does the Lord not elaborate here? <laughs> why does He not enter into details? Was it through prostitute? Was, there, was it gambling? was it just uh, expensive luxurious living what how did he spend everything the Lord doesn't say and there are two reasons why I believe he doesn't say first of all because the more detail he would give the less his audience would be able to identify with the Sun the way he's describing this is so generic that I think Every one of us could see himself as a prodigal son. You know, we've all been given by grace goodness in life life, health, family, opportunity, lots of goodies of all sorts and kinds. What have we done with this? What have we done with all the good things God has given us? So far, we we can all say, Well, I wasted it all. I lived it all in a wrong way without acknowledging God, without loving God, without believing God, without serving God. So far we can all identify. And that's why the Lord does not go into detail. Every one of us here, even in this room, can say, I have been a prodigal son. I know I have been a prodigal son. And I'm sure that every one of you can say in all honesty, we all wasted our life up to a certain point until He found us. But secondly, I think He's not going into details because, he again, he wants, he wants us to understand the most essential point. Earlier, we noticed how the most essential point was the character of God. Understanding who God is because that makes all the difference. But here at this point, He wants us to understand the basic issue the basic reason why human life is wasted and lost and condemned what's what is it that ultimately will condemn a human being is because he's rejected God he's rejected God it really does not matter ultimately the kind of life that he lives you may be uh, a firefighter, you may be a, a banker, you may be a housewife, you can be uh, a sportsman, you can be professional in many different ways and vocations of all sorts, but it does not matter. What matters is that with what God has given you, your life and all your opportunities and all your goods, you have wasted them because you've not known God in your life. That's ultimately what will damn you, what will condemn you. Then God one day will enter into the specifics, but the singular point is just that one there. And the Lord wants us to understand it is the point in which he broke with his father. The the breaking with God, the rejection of God, the running away from God, that's what will ultimately condemn any human being. And then, of course, and when he had uh, not many days after the youngster gathered all together journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions in prodigal living, and when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizens of that country and sent him into the fields to, to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled stomach with the pods that the swine ate but no one gave him anything the world is not enough friends are not gonna be enough so there is a point of crisis we can try to postpone the crisis with different resources but the crisis will come some people postpone until the last breath (laughs) last breath and they're lost forever but crisis will come, crisis will come verse 17 and when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have been enough and to spare and I perish with hunger and I will rise and go to my father and will say to him father And so now the prodigal son begins to come to himself and rethink this. But before we talk about this ultimately, let me make a couple of points that are important, important. Now we talk about this individual, this is the story of an individual person, a human person who breaks with God and goes his way and loses himself. But, This parable helps us to see even a bigger picture. If we go back to Adam in Genesis 3, wouldn't you see in Adam the first prodigal son, Adam and Eve, who broke from God and went their way. And Adam and Eve represents all humanity. So really all humanity I would say the history of all humanity can be understood in the terms that we find in the parable of the prodigal son. In the very beginning humanity broke away from God and went its way and if you study history in that light it is the history of a lost humanity. L'intera storia dell'umanità può essere capita secondo il principio che leggiamo nella parabola del figlio prodigo di un'umanità che rompe il rapporto con dio e vuole fare il suo il suo percorso collettivamente se studiamo la storia dell'umanità in questi termini tutto si illumina comprendiamo perchè le guerre perchè gli imperi perchè la violenza perchè la schiavitù lo sfruttamento il sangue Poi la grazia di Dio comunque è stata presente, il Signore ha continuato a benedirci nonostante tutto il nostro orrore, ma la storia dell'umanità la possiamo ritrovare anche nella storia del figlio prodigo, quindi possiamo leggerla individualmente e collettivamente come chiave di lettura interpretativa di tutta la storia umana, tutta la storia umana. Allow me just a few Italian words if you would. anche per quanto riguarda la storia della nostra civiltà moderna la nostra civiltà moderna inizia possiamo dire verso la metà del seicento famosa dichiarazione di cartesio io penso quindi sono io penso significava secondo il suo metodo di analisi posso mettere in dubbio tutto anche dio ma non posso mettere in dubbio me stesso perché io esisto e come so che esisto perché penso quindi l'uomo inteso come essere razionale partiva da se stesso e partendo da se stesso l'unico indubitabile poteva mettere in dubbio tutto il resto o anche Dio e tutto il resto l'inizio della modernità è quella poi il Settecento il razionalismo che prende piede da Cartesio E si costruisce una società scientifica, uh, tecnica, tecnologica, elettrica, computerizzata. E viviamo ai nostri giorni, ma un'umanità decadente, spiritualmente, moralmente decadente, che sta andando verso l'abisso. Però di nuovo parte tutto con il distacco, il distacco da Dio, distatto, distacco adamico, <ride> come storia dell'intera umanità, e anche il distacco storico, se noi analizziamo la storia della nostra civiltà in questi termini. Tutto si illumina, tutto si illumina. Quando inizia il distacco, sono sono tutti molto contenti, l'umanità, grandi prospettive, grandi sviluppo, progresso, scienza, benessere... Questi erano i sogni, no? Questi erano i sogni anche del Novecento, inizio Novecento, poi in realtà ci sono state le guerre mondiali e questa folle umanità continua a viaggiare in quella direzione, non cambia mica. E allora ecco che noi possiamo capire tramite la Bibbia, il Vangelo, possiamo capire la realtà che viviamo oggi e aiutare i nostri ragazzi a capirla in questi termini secondo la scrittura che è fondamentale e ultimately however again I was saying that the parable of the prodigal son can be even used to analyze the history of our own c- civilization because our, our civilization started with the breaking away from God in the 1700s uh, rationalism and uh, the, uh, everything interpreted on the basis of man's reason not, no longer on the basis of the word of God but that will take too long let us conclude however uh, the most important point of all we said that now the son begins to rethink this you know, is, is really there any hope I tried everything I cannot find in the world something that will respond to my present needs I am hopeless but there's one thought that has never abandoned his mind the thought of his father that connection who can remember who can forget a father may have been the worst father of all but can you forget your father can you forget your parents no there's there's a special connection there It may be ugly, it may be awful, but there's something there. But the memory that he has of his father is a good memory. Because he remembers his father as a very gracious man. And he begins to think, would there be any hope for me to find grace in his eyes? And so he begins to think this. And he says at a certain point, I'm talking about... (coughs) Verse 18, this is what he, 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 you know, he determines he's going to say. I will rise up and I'll go to my father and I will say to him just this. I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I have insulted you. I have offended you. I have regarded you as good as dead and I have left you. And did not want to know anything about you. I ran away from you. And lived my life so and so. And I'm no longer worthy. To be called your son. I know that. I'm not worthy. Just one thing I ask. If you would just make me like one of your hired servants. You know, Would you do that for me? Please. So he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way old. His father saw him and had compassion, and his heart melted, and ran towards him, and fell on look look how careful the Lord is in depicting the picture. Fell on his neck and kissed him. the The original word is uh, imperfecto. Verbo imperfecto. So it's really like he was kissing lo Not just one, but many. Many just like filled him with kisses all over the place. Uh, he, was, he was sweaty, he was uh, dirty, didn't matter. Kissing him all over the place. Just this outpouring of affection. Again, that gives us a picture of who God is. That's how he is. That's how he is when we return. And how grateful I am. How grateful we are. We should be. Uh, And and the son said to him, the the son sort of, Father, let me say this to you. (laughs) I want to say this to you. And He said, Father, I've sinned. against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be your son and and while he was still speaking, because he had prepared all of his speech, you know and it was it was sincere but he wanted to say it all, the whole prayer you know, the prayer conversion but the father, that but said, means that the father interrupted him the, the, the father interrupted him it's like, you know, I can see your heart I can see your heart. You don't need to say every, the, the, the right words. I can see your heart. The Father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring here the fattest calf and kill it and let us eat and be happy and be merry. The, the note of joy that we found in the other two parables is repeated here. This too he calls all of his servants and rejoices. Why? Because this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be married. Notice that the son did not expect this he just wanted to be a servant he did not think he could be reinstated as a son uh, that's not that was beyond his imagination because he knew he had lost all the goods he had been first granted freely by the father the father was in no uh, you know, constrained to give him anything uh, before he died So all that was given to him was pure grace. And he wasted everything. And he knows that he has no claim. He has no right. But the father wants to restate him as his son with full honor. And behold, you know, the person who had just rags on, now he wears the most beautiful robe. He was barefooted. Now he has sandals. He certainly had no jewelry on him. No, he has a beautiful ring of sonship and that's grace that's grace um, if you ask why did the father forgive him after all the sons has done there can only be two questions for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son this is sheer love there's nothing else I can explain this just the love of God again the heart of God the mercy of God but we must not forget the fact that uh, evil demands punishment deserves punishment and so the evil that was done must be paid And the reason why the father now is so willing and does, in fact, forgive his son, erasing in one instant all the evil that he's ever done, is because somebody else, the very person who's telling the parable, would one day give his own life in a few months' time, taking away all the burden of sin and guilt in the eyes of God all sin was paid for by the Lord uh, I will conclude by reminding you of that one scripture that the Lord himself gave in Matthew twenty twenty-eight: the son of man has not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many so the giving of his life is the price that is necessary to be forgiven, to be justified, to be to be purified of all of our guilt? Um, and the greatest question, that even us in Italy, with all the religion, and that we must has, ask is this: Has Christ paid all the price that was necessary to be paid? Did He pay it all? all the judgment all the wrath all the condemnation or, or is there something we must do to earn forgiveness to buy this love and the simple answer is absolutely not <laughs> because his life his death was the payment for a sin and that's why the prodigal son now can be welcomed in such a joy That joy took place because of all the pain, and all the agony, and all the horror that the Son of God experienced on the cross of Calvary. It's not a silly joy, it is not a superficial joy, there's no silliness here. It's a holy joy, even in some way it's a serious joy because it was so expensive to him uh, to be able to give us life, peace and joy again in his salvation so Christianity is always balanced we are joyful, we are happy, we are peaceful but we are also serious we are also grave Uh, because of the price that was paid in the light of his agony and death. We can experience this great free joy that it gives us in saving us. I trust every everyone here has come to know, has come to this point in his life of ultimate crisis just like the prodigal son where the, the, the only answer left for us was in His salvation, in His forgiveness. Um, let us remember the arms of God are open. Our God is a God who stands with open arms towards everyone that will come to Him in simple repentance and faith, but true from the heart. We don't have to pray gigantic theological prayers. It's just like, save me, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you can go home justified, (laughs) so the Lord teaches. Embrace it. Embrace it. Uh, It will be worth forever. Uh, Amen.